You are listening to Danvers Audio, a podcast by the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. This episode features Dr. Ligon Duncan, Chancellor and CEO of Reformed Theological Seminary and a CBMW board member. He recently spoke at our Together for the Gospel pre-conference on the Nashville Statement, which was released last fall. The title of his talk is, What Does Nashville Have to Do with Danvers? It is a privilege and a pleasure to be with you this morning talking about a very important issue for the church today. One of the things that Dr. Moeller and I will have an opportunity to do in one of the breakout sessions here at T4G is talk about current challenges that the church is facing. And this will definitely be one of the things that we talk about because it has massive ramifications. And I'm going to try and explain that in the time that I have with you this morning. Uh, I've been asked to begin this pre-conference that is being put on by the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, CBMW, Uh, and specifically addressing the Nashville Statement. In particular, I have been asked to address the relationship between the Nashville Statement and the Danvers Statement. So let me repeat and elaborate just a couple of things that Denny has already said to you. Uh, I've been a part of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood for over a quarter of a century. I I was not in the United States when the Danvers Statement was adopted and CBMW began. I was doing my doctoral work at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland in 1987 when uh, the folks gathered at the Evangelical Theological Society that was meeting uh, near Boston and adopted the the Danvers Statement. But one of my professors uh, from seminary was deeply involved in those discussions, and he alerted me to them, and I think even sent me early drafts that were coming out of the work of those original CBMW founders, commended them to me, and then he served on the CBMW council, and uh, when they were looking for new members, he said, hey, I have a student who's now a young professor at RTS, and I think he ought to be a part of the council, and so uh, I met Uh, with uh, the council and was uh, received as a member of the council. I think I sat between Dorothy Patterson and, um, let me think, who was on the other side of me? Somebody that's still on the council uh, today for my very first meeting. Bruce Ware was giving leadership to to the council's work in those days, and I knew all the original participants. The organization is uh, just over 30 years old now, and I've been involved with it for almost that whole time. CBMW originally came into being to affirm and really to help give definition to complementarianism. And let me not assume that you can give a one-sentence definition of that. It's a good thing for us to rehearse these things so that when people stick a microphone in front of our face or ask us on the elevator, hey, what exactly do you mean by complementarianism? You can give the, an answer in one biblical sentence. And so here it is. Complementarianism is the biblical belief that God has created male and female in His image and thus has designed men and women as his image bearers to be both equal in their essential dignity and human personhood and different from and complementary to one another. 
And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a whole boatload of truth in that sentence that can be unpacked, but it's, it's profoundly needful today. It's just as, if not more needful today, than it was 30 years ago. And uh, that's how the CBMW Danvers statement defines the, the core, the, the, the nub, the essence of what we mean by complementarianism. The Danvers Statement was written in 1987 to articulate this and to affirm this. And John Piper, who was one of the original authors and signatories and will be here this week at Together for the Gospel, explains the Danvers Statement unfolded and commended complementarianism over against egalitarianism. And as Denny has already said, especially evangelical egalitarianism. Mainline Protestantism had adopted egalitarianism at least 30 years before Danvers came into being. Mainline Protestantism from, from 30 to 100 years before the Danvers Statement had been in the process of adopting egalitarianism, a, a view that denies the God-given distinctions between men and women and the ramifications of that in the church and in the home, okay? But what Danvers is responding to is between that 30 years before Danvers when mainline Protestantism had all, you know, ensconced egalitarianism in the law of the church, in, in between that 30 years and Danvers, that kind of belief had, been, had begun to spread into evangelicalism, which had, even where it existed within mainline Protestantism, had resisted some of those moves in uh, Protestantism, and then where it existed outside of mainline Protestantism in denominational form was beginning to be infected by that egalitarianism. And so Danvers was, was speaking to us. It wasn't, wasn't saying, hey, you guys out there are wrong. It's, hey, we, our family is now beginning to be infected by an unbiblical view. So the Danvers statement unfolded and commended complementarianism over against egalitarianism, especially what's called evangelical egalitarianism. The focus was on the meaning of manhood and womanhood as expressed in the marriage relationship and in church leadership. The main point was that God has called men to be Christ-like leaders in their marriages, Ephesians 5, 23 and 25, and to be those who bear the special responsibility of authoritative teaching and leadership in the church, 1 Timothy 2, 12, and 13. Now, the, the Nashville statement is a complement to Danvers, uh, but it speaks into issues of human sexuality. Danvers addresses the respective roles of men and women in the home and the church Nashville articulates the Bible's teaching on important and disputed aspects of human sexuality. And it, it was interesting to see the response to the Nashville Statement. One of our, one of our significant academic critics after the, after the 
the, the flash of the initial response calmed down, acknowledge that all Nashville does is affirm historic Christian teaching on what men and women are. But the blowback to Nashville was unbelievable in its, in its initial production. And there, there's a lot, there, there are a lot of reasons for that, but one of the main reasons is all across the church today, uh, we are seeing the co-opting of historic Christian teaching by the culture's view on this issue. And it's, it's almost like your drug is being taken away from you if you hold to historic Christian teaching on this. So pervasive is the culture's influence on this issue. One of the reasons that I was so appreciative that Denny Burke was bravely willing to address an issue that we knew from the outset was not going to be popular to say. Let me, let me say, I'm going to say this again, but let me say it now. A lot of people viewed the Nashville statement as a statement of culture war. And uh, as if we were going to rally the troops and storm Washington and Wheaton and take over. We, we knew... We knew when we said this that it was not going to be popular. We, we, we did not have any idea that people were going to be waving flags and saying, yay, Denny Burke and CBMW have stated historic biblical truth on what men and women are. Uh, we knew people were going to hate it. Uh, I said that to the meeting. Before we signed the Nashville statement together, before we finalized it, after we had had wonderful, robust discussion of it, before that ever happened, I was asked to address the, the meeting, and one of the things I said is, brothers and sisters, people are going to hate this, and we need to do it anyway. So this was, this was not an act of culture war on our part. Well, we, we were saying to the church, hey, church, it might be a good idea if you had a biblical view of what men and women are. And the ramifications of that for sexuality uh, in uh, the church and in the culture. And so uh, I signed the Nashville Statement because the Nashville Statement aims to help Christians, pastors, and churches lovingly, faithfully, carefully, clearly, and persuasively articulate what the Bible teaches and what historic Christianity has always believed about sexuality in a time when the biblical conception of what it means to be a human is under cultural duress. Uh, Al Mohler, a few years ago at a conference, says, you know, used to, when a, when a Christian husband and father sits his son down to have the talk, he used to say something like this to his son. Now, son... Um, there, there's going to be, uh, there's, there's going to come a time when you want to get married. And when you want to get married, it's real important for you to marry a, a godly Christian woman. And, and Al said, today, when a Christian husband and father has that talk, he has to say, now, son, when... It comes time for you to get married. 
it's, it's really important for you to marry a woman. And, 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 and let me explain to you what one of those is. And, it, and it's funny to us, we laugh, but it's true. And that is the difference between Danvers and Nashville in, in just 30 years. I mean, is that not stunning? The speed at which this discussion uh, has proceeded, not just in the larger culture, but in our churches. We disagree at the level of how you define what a man and a woman is and whether that can be defined apart from a person's self-definition. And evangelicals are ready to concede on that issue today. It's one of, the, one of the issues that I do not envy for my evangelical egalitarian friends. They've got a real problem in this area because many of those evangelical egalitarians want to hold on to a traditional definition of what man and woman is, and they want to be faithful in this area of speech. I can name some evangelical egalitarians that have spoken into this issue, but there are very few evangelical egalitarians that have spoken prophetically into the whole range of LGBTQIA issues. Very few, and there's a reason. Um, do, do any of you know the name Jack Rogers? Uh, Jack Rogers was a, a, is a past moderator of the Presbyterian Church USA. That's the mainline mostly liberal Presbyterian denomination. And a, a number of years ago, when the Presbyterian Church USA was debating the ordination of same-sex attracted and same-sex practicing persons, Jack Rogers, the moderator of the Peace USA, said, hey, this issue has already been decided. We decided this issue when we affirmed the ordination of women to the pastoral ministry. Now, there are many evangelical egalitarians that would want to say, no, 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 that's not true. These two issues are, are not tied together. But here's, here's an advocate for LGBTQIA practicing ordination saying, no, 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 when we made that decision 40 years ago in the PCUSA, we made this decision because those decisions are tied together. And what, what I want to argue is that's exactly right. And that, that's one of the reasons why there's a linkage between Danvers and Nashville. It's one of the reasons we felt we needed to speak on this. Um, if you have decided that gender has nothing to do with marriage and biblical ordination in the, in the life of the church, then you're going to have a hard time with basic definitions of what is a man and what is a woman and the whole range of uh, LGBTQIA issues that we're facing today. And uh, that connection is one of the animating reasons why we felt we needed to speak into this moment of confusion. Now, Honestly, on this issue, I would rather you listen to people like Sam Alberry and Andrew Walker and 
Ryan Anderson and Vaughn Roberts. There's so many voices that know so much more than I do on this, and you're going to hear much better cultural analysis from Al Mohler in just a few minutes than you're going to hear now. But let me just speak um, <clears throat> as a pastor who has same-sex attracted members uh, in a congregation who want to be faithful to the, to the Word of God uh, in their lives. In fact, they, they say things to me like this, Pastor, if you ever stop teaching what the Bible says about how we're to live in terms of sexual fidelity, I'm leaving this church. That, that's my same-sex attracted member saying that to me. Thank God for those brothers and sisters who are trying to walk faithfully according uh, to the Word. Let me speak to you as a pastor about why I think this issue is so important and four things in particular that I think we need to bear in mind as we address it. As we maintain classic Christian orthodoxy in this area, I think you need to be aware of four things in particular. And the first thing is this. Do not, brothers and sisters, in faithful, Bible-believing, evangelical churches where Christ is preached, where the gospel is proclaimed, where the Bible is believed, do not assume that your younger generation agrees with you on this. Do not assume that your younger generation agrees with you on this. So when you speak... Don't speak to the world out there as if you have nobody in here to persuade. Speak to your younger generation as if they don't agree with you, but don't speak to them as your enemy. Speak to them as disciples who need to be persuaded. Okay? Let me, let me tell you two stories on this. Um, 25 or so years ago, Bruce Ware, uh, who's been thinking about this issue for a long time, said something like this. I could actually read the quote from my notes, but let me just, let me just paraphrase Bruce to you. Bruce said, in speaking to evangelicals on why complementarianism was, issue, uh, was important, he said, look, the culture doesn't care about your doctrine. The culture only cares about your ethics, and if what you teach about ethics is going to get in the way of what they want to do. And so he then said this, so watch out your, that what your ethical teaching is going to be what is in conflict with the culture, and if you compromise on biblical ethical teaching, you may eventually compromise on biblical doctrine. Now, I think Bruce was exactly right 25 years ago, but the situation is more dire today because here's what's happened. On the range of LGBTQIA issues, the culture has figured this, they figured this out. The people who are the most resistant to being same-sex identity, lifestyle, and practice resistant are people who have doctrinal convictions behind the resistance to the affirmation of LGBTQIA self-identity, 
uh, and, and practice. And therefore, what they are doing is they're going after your doctrine as the root of the problem. And you need, to, you need to recognize that. That's what's behind the whole Matthew Vines Reformation project. The, the reason why people are, are trying to say, no, 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 we've misunderstood our Bibles all these years. There is no proscription in the Bible against uh, same-sex sexual and marital relationships. There's no prescription in the Bible to defining marriage as marriage between a man and a man or a man, uh, or a woman and a woman, or whatever other uh, particular formulation is culturally approved uh, at, at this point. And so there's, there's massive interest in this movement, even in evangelicalism, to redefining doctrine. Because the understanding is if we don't redefine our doctrine in this area, we won't be able to redefine our practice, and the ultimate goal is to redefine the practice and create a context in which... Uh, a male-male marriage is just as accepted as a male-female marriage. Uh, do not assume that your young folk are with you on this. Uh, I was speaking to uh, a group of campus ministers about six months ago, and I told the story of the leader of a major campus ministry who had been uh, to an evangelical seminary that believes what Nashville teaches and what Danvers teaches about manhood and womanhood and about faithful sexuality. And um, the, the faculty there had said, hey, tell us something that would surprise us about the students coming to us to study at this seminary from your faithful Bible-believing campus ministry. And he said, well, the good news is they will, when you're teaching the doctrines of grace and... Uh, the doctrines of the gospel, they are going to be with you 100% because they fully understand their own brokenness, especially their sexual brokenness, and they recognize that their only hope is grace. And so they're going to be so with you when you were expounding grace. That was a very encouraging thing. Then, then he said this, but when you begin to teach on this, marriage, gender, sexuality, Danvers, Nashville, they're going to politely listen to you. They're going to believe in the authority of the Bible, but they're going to disagree with your application of the Bible to this area. And they all said, you're kidding me. And he said, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm out there on the campuses. I know, I know where the kids are coming from on this. As I was addressed, telling that story to this group of campus ministers, a campus minister at Rice University in Houston came up to me and he said, Dr. Duncan, it's worse than that. He said, I, you know, he, I, I lead a, 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 a Bible-believing campus ministry at Rice, and my students will affirm the authority of Scripture for salvation and doctrine, but they believe that when the Bible speaks to cultural issues, it has blind spots. And suddenly, I'm hearing a partial inspiration, liberal view of, Christ, of Scripture articulated in an evangelical campus ministry. 
Do not think your high school students and your college students and your young adults, pastors, are not affected by that kind of thinking. But don't treat them as your enemy. Okay? You make them declare you to be their enemy, but you don't, don't, don't treat them as your enemy. Persuade, don't panic, persuade. You have got to be in the mode of opening up your Bibles and speaking persuasively into that. Second, recognize that what we're doing here today will be viewed speaking on this issue, writing on this issue, addressing on this issue, addressing this issue will be viewed by that younger generation as negative, alarmist, and unhelpful. Addressing this issue will be viewed as divisive. It will be viewed as an exercise in culture war because those same young Christians that I was just telling about, they view, they are allergic to polemics and to any kind of teaching in this area that divides people from one another. And, and so as, as you do it, you're going to have to address it in such a way to say, I'm not here to talk about what the culture thinks. I'm here to talk about what the Bible teaches and therefore what the church should believe and practice. I'm not here to wag my finger at the culture, nor am I here to say the church's track record in the area of marriage, gender, and sexuality is pristine. And now we're going to tell that bad old culture out there where it's getting it wrong. No, in fact, your young people are acutely aware of the failures in the church in the areas of marriage, gender, and sexuality. I mean, the last two years has been devastating and depressing, hasn't it? You know, as, as, the, as the Me Too movement and the Church Too movement and just the, the grotesque uncovering of sexual abuse and harassment in the churches has been uncovered to our shame and, and to our disgrace. And if we address, we try to address this without owning that, we lose from the outset. So we've got to own the church's failure in order to articulate the Bible's truth to the church so that the church is called back to the Bible standard. It's not as if up until 1987 we were doing it all right. No-fault divorce had already wrecked us a quarter century before 1987. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. So we've, as you address this, you've got to own You've got to own the failings of Christians and of the church as you call the church to faithfulness in this area. Third, the people who will win the day on this issue are the ones who are the most evident in their love 
for those who are struggling with same-sex attraction. We cannot just be the truth people. We have to be the love people. We have to double down on love without compromising commitment to the truth. Here's what a lot of people in evangelicalism are wanting to do. They're wanting to ditch truth and go with love. It won't work because there is no Christian love without Christian truth. You can't love without truth, but you also cannot proclaim truth without love. We must speak the truth in love, and in this area, we've got to double down on love. Now, that is an, that's an especially difficult thing. Um, uh, about a month after I signed the Nashville Statement, one of my friends uh, from Furman contacted me on Facebook. And uh, he said, I am horrified that you have signed the Nashville Statement. It, that it is a hateful, vicious, vitriolic, dehumanizing document. And you have deeply hurt your friend X who has been in a faithful same-sex marriage for the last 20 years, how could you do this to him? You need to take your name off that document, publicly repent of it, and then call him up and repent of him, uh, repent to him because you've devastated him. I knew that was coming when I signed the document. Um, and so I had a very interesting exchange with that brother. And when we finished that exchange, I think he would say to you, he was still grieved that I believed what I believe. Here, here's the burden you're going to have to face in these relationships. You're going to have people who are grieved by what you believe. but you are going to have to relentlessly continue to love those people who are grieved by what you believe. And um, I, I said to him, brother, you can't be angry with me enough on this to stop me loving you. So you, you can think I am, a, I am the theological version of a white hooded wearing white supremacist in this area and I'm still gonna love you. And when everybody else abandons you, including in your community, I'll be there. And so we are going to have to, in practice, double down on love while tenaciously holding to biblical truth. Because the people who win in this area will be the people who outlove the people who claim to be welcoming and affirming. And that's got to be experienced. And look, nobody's gonna be waving banners and bringing out uh, cameras and, and, and lights to congratulate you for doing that. This is going to happen quietly out of the scenes in local congregations where pastors and elders and church members hang in there with their faithful same-sex attracted members and with other people that are attracted to the church because they, they know that what's being sold to them by the LGBTQIA community is not working and they're, they're looking for hope, and they know that the, the hope that they need is not found in what they're being sold, and so they're giving you a shot. Your love is going to be the determining factor there. Um, fourth and finally, 
do not assume that the struggles of all the people who are same-sex attracted in your congregation are going to be the same. Um, I, I had elders who were same-sex attracted and happily married two women with children and they'd never told anybody their struggle. And I had same-sex attracted men in the congregation who the very idea of marrying a woman gave them the heebie-jeebies. But they were committed to being faithful and celibate and walking in accordance with the word and everything in between. I had, I had people whose, whose desires were fluctuating. That's one reason why, my friends, we do not define our identity by our desires. We define it by what God has made us as men and women and by what God says about us, especially as Christians in the Word. Our fundamental identity is we are people in Christ as believers. And then behind that, it's what, it's what God says in His Word He has made us. Let me give you a, a, a wonderful quote from Sam Albury, who's sitting up here. Your, sec, your psychology, our culture says, your psychology is your sexual identity. So let your body be conformed to it. But the Bible says your body is your sexual identity. Let your mind be confirmed to it. And I had a whole range of different pastoral struggles amongst the same-sex attracted members of my congregation in that area of identity and practice. Don't think this is a one-size-fits-all issue. This, this is why, please, please utilize the resources that Sam Albury and others have created at Living Out. You will learn so much in this area. And then just listen really closely to Sam this morning and to others who know so much more about this than I do. Friends, this is an important issue, especially because there is a biblical authority issue going on here. Okay? And if we cave on this, we inherently have to cave in on biblical authority, which will compromise our gospel proclamation and the life and witness of the church. Resources like Danvers Audio are made possible by the financial support of our individual and church partners. If you or someone you know has benefited from the ministry of CBMW, please consider becoming a partner today by visiting cbmw.org forward slash partnerships. Thanks for listening to Danvers Audio.